So, like, I think I've come to the conclusion that this generation, or our generation, the millennials and the Gen Z are the best. Like, because social media, we're always watched. And, like, because we're always watched, like, we always have to be accountable. Because there's a lot of things from past generations that were never watched, never accounted for, and a lot of beliefs that like people just say without even hesitating. And you know, they don't shy away from it. And it caused I don't know, it caused me to feel a little weird. Uh Oh, I, I B-roll into the intro. Here's the intro. Uh, this is the LCSW, the podcast with Omar Green, LCSW. Uh, this is the second test podcast, and I'm getting my stuff together more and more. I'm using GarageBand. I'm using iMovie. I'm making things work. I'm having a setup that's nice and comfortable. So therefore, I can just talk and talk and talk and talk and talk and talk. Um, and so, you know, it's weird. Like, when I think about this whole process of starting the whole podcast, because there's so many things to, like, uh, think about, you know, when you're doing a podcast and in terms of just like equipment and setup and how and when and sound and it sounds corny but it really is where I start but but yeah, back to the thing I was talking about so I had sometimes there's patients that you know um, have difficulty in putting themselves in great situations and and put themselves around toxic people. People that just want to exploit them, uh, want to take advantage of them. People that don't care about their well-being. And, and, you know, people allow themselves to be around those toxic people for a lot of reasons. You know, sometimes, honestly, you could be just looking for something else. You know, you could be looking to not be alone. You could be looking for a connection. You know, sometimes, you know, you could just honestly be tricked. There's a lot of people that are very, you know, uh, persuasive and, and, and calm people that know how to persuade anybody to make people feel like what they're doing is the right thing and that you should want to be around them. You know, and I've seen people like that throughout my whole life, especially in my profession. You know, people that can twist words, um, can easily get a feel for what you're going through and realize what are the things that you want. Um, and then honestly, just turn a phrase and just try to figure out how to make what they want to do seem like what you want. And that's called, you know, some of the pathological. You often see that in like substance use um, sometimes uh, disorders, sometimes you see that uh, in some personality disorders um, where you see people, you know, do whatever they have to do, say whatever they have to say, lie, you know, deceive, do whatever it is just to get, you know, their hands on, you know, more substance, whatever drug they're trying to use. Um, and as I mentioned with personality disorders, you can see that with people that either have borderline personality disorder, um, 
who people who are narcissistic. You can see uh, people that have antisocial personality disorder that just don't care. Um, you can see that with like a lot of different disorders. The ability to try to calm people into whatever it is they want. You can see that in, in conduct disorders. And that's why there's like a crossover between conduct disorders. Um, no, hey, you can see that even in bipolar. In uh, someone that's like hyper talkative and someone that's like, you know, goal oriented and, and just, talk, you know, saying whatever they have to say to make it seem like whatever they dream they have will enlist people to sort of be a part of that. But whether it's because someone is just convincing or someone is just looking, um, you know, it's something about these type of, those types of aspects that, you know, lead people to feel like they should be in toxic situations when they're not. And honestly, those toxic situations are what lead, you know, people to be in dangerous situations at times. And, recent, and you know, in the past I had someone like that um, that was in a toxic situation um, because, you know, they weren't used to being alone. And to kind of talk about toxic peers, you know, it's way easier said than done because, you know, when you get rid of toxic peers, you don't just get like automatically, you know, super awesome people to replace them. You know, some people may have that, they may have a good support system. And, and some people, honestly, uh, have a tough time. You know, and because they don't have a support system, they don't have friends and family, and they're just gonna be a little lonely. But all those things are things that sort of lead to people being in those bad situations where, you know, they would just take people maybe they shouldn't take and spend time with them and allow themselves to do that. And because, you know, they maybe don't, they may not naturally uh, deal with those people, you know, they're going to maybe allow them to do more. And so, I, you know, I, there was a situation where this person, unfortunately, put himself around that and, and, and twice, you know, was uh, victimized. You know, the person, unfortunately, felt victim of that. And consulting with someone about that victimization, you know, it was almost shocking to hear that this person blamed, almost seems to be blaming, you know, the victim. And that's not to say that better choices of environment and people are mostly exclusive from the accountability that people hold. You know, I, I literally just talked about that. Literally, there are sessions where I have to go through with clients, like what is a good friend? What is a bad friend? What is a good environment? What is a bad environment? Because honestly, some people just jump into whatever. And once you're in that bad situation, it's really hard to get yourself out of. Um, it really is. I, you know, and I, I, that's something I kind of say even from a professional level. It's like, you know, some of the reasons why I don't get into trouble is because I don't get into bad situations in the first place. You know, um, but those things are hard because who knows what a bad friend is? You know, like, who knows what their goals are and knows literally all the things that can jeopardize it. 
you know, who knows what uh, their things they don't like until it, it happens to them. Most people, you know, don't know the different ways that they can be, uh, you know, exploited and abused. And there's a lot of ways, unfortunately, people can exploit and abuse people, you know, and, and they just don't know. But it's still a conversation to have, even if it's something that takes time uh, to talk about. And there are some things you can do. You can talk about whether, you know, someone has similar interests um, in terms of like possibly uh, doing, you know, substances. Is that something that you're into? Are you into all the consequences that come with that? You know, uh, in terms of similarities, uh, whether it be like age or whether it be like, what are you both looking into? Are you looking for a relationship? Is the person just looking to hook up? It could be a lot of those things. Does this person have a job? Does this person, you know, go to school? has ambition. There's a lot of things that you can sort of get from someone almost instantly that says, man, maybe this person is not the right person for me. And that doesn't mean you discriminate people. Sometimes, you know, it, it points in the wrong direction. Um, but sometimes it actually will look a lot better than what it seems like. Um, you know, and so therefore you'll have that. But most of the time, that's a great way to sort of, if not weed people out, to have a caution. So therefore, you know, you can uh, approach with caution to make sure that person is there. Because, you know, once that person is in your intimate space, it's a lot harder uh, to get out. And I think that's going to be maybe the second part of this podcast is that it's like what is a safety plan what is a safety plan when you're in a domestic environment with someone else um but yeah so there's a so you know as i'm going on and rambling a little bit there's a ton of stuff but the reason why it's so wrong to do that because it's the one thing we're told not to do is to make it seem like they're the one at fault they could be have some culpability, but it's no one's fault to have mental health. You know, like it isn't. It's just not. Um, and anyone that tells you that is wrong. Um, it's no one's fault to be victimized. No one acts to be that. And and the accountability shouldn't be internalized completely. Like we. You know, that's a part of um, treatment when it comes to trauma, is that people sometimes will internalize completely, you know, what happens to them. Like, they'll say, you know, it's all my fault, and I could have did X, Y, and Z. And maybe they could have did a couple things better. It's not to even say there's no blame. I've said before, as we just talked about. But it's not 100% their fault. And it should never be seen as 100% their fault because they live in a world, and in a world that, you know, doesn't always care, and a world that may have some negative things toward them, but they still live in a world where they have to be, uh, have some sense of uh, morality and consistency uh, to, to, to navigate through. Um, and so, yeah, it, it was a, it was an interesting exchange. And like I said, the casual, the amount of casual things that it seemed like, it just seemed like this person wasn't even, you know, there for this conversation of, okay, well, you know, yes, this person could have made better conversations, uh, uh, decisions, I'm sorry. Um, but this, still shouldn't happen. And, and, and I feel like in a world where you are, you are victimized and, um, and this is the response, it's, you know, it makes you feel, it makes me feel like, yeah, I'm not going to tell you. Because how does this happen to me? 
you know, and then like you're coming out and blaming me for it or, or you know, shrugging it off. And then even maybe doing things to distance myself. Because, you know, when it comes to dealing with trauma, like it's really more about processing it all the way to acceptance, all the way to the point where you realize that unfortunately these things are a part of life and unfortunately we have to continue living and that's way easier said than done uh, in terms of actually you know having that be accomplished and part of that is strength building and part of that is is trying to you know go over the person the uh the trauma at the person's pace to realize some of the things that they could have done and some things that they already do to get a sense of strength um and so i feel like you know those things lead to um those things lead to actual you know a processing and when someone feels strong, whether that's in their resources, uh, you know, their ability to deal with certain situations, um, they really just even talk about it. Because even that is a huge deal, just to talk about it. You know, then you get to the point where you can sort of process it. But to just have someone say, hey man, like we're gonna just, skill, you know, build skills with you and just teach you generic skills, like, that doesn't, that doesn't help. You know, it, I don't think it's a help. Um, you know, and especially when you're saying you need more appointments, it, it needs more attention. It doesn't need literally more appointments like you know like it need, these things take time like finding out your support system takes time uh being strong enough to understand that revisiting these things will be painful until you you know redefine whatever happened to find some sense of resilience takes time um it doesn't happen overnight and especially you know when unfortunately you've been traumatized uh, repeatedly, you know, getting to a point where you don't blame yourself for what happened, but you do take accountability for how to improve takes time. You know, none of these things are automatic, and these things can take a while. And so when you're in a room and you're in group therapy, like this person unfortunately ended up, um, you're not processing. You're in a room or of COVID, you're online in your computer in terms like Zoom chat, and you have people dividing that time. So you don't even get time to be with your therapist by yourself. It's about something else, but just to gain some comfort and rapport with that person. You know, and also to kind of mention what I just said, you're with a brand new therapist. You're not with someone that you have rapport with. Part of being able to finally get to a point where you can talk about this stuff is having rapport. And if you have to rebuild that from scratch, that's even gonna further uh, go through this. And yes, it may take time to process these things, um, but that time is still time that's needed, time that should be actually processed. Like you can't cheat the time by just not talking about it or not being present with someone that's willing to talk about it because there's no exact, you know, time limit. I can't tell you a day or week, but when you are willing and ready to talk about it, you know, you will be willing and ready to talk about it. And at that time, you know, you want to have people that you trust and you want to be able to have a conversation. But some formats lend to a conversation and some formats don't. And a group one, it doesn't. 
You know what I mean? It just doesn't. And and I, I think that you have to be around people that you're ready to talk about, ready to talk with uh, about what happened uh, and how each moment made you feel. Because, you know, up, up until it actually happened, you know, we have thoughts and feelings. And knowing what those feelings mean you know, are a part of what makes us human to gain a meaning from our experiences. So therefore, we can kind of realize what they do to us moving forward. And so I, I, I don't know, it was shocking, it, it, especially in this Me Too world, to hear that. You know, I, I couldn't believe what I was hearing. And now it's, what is, as a provider, how do you go against a superior when you realize they're making a wrong decision? And not by a little bit. Like, they're wrong. And our provider needs us to advocate for them. We'll talk about uh, how to do that at the other side of this break. Wow, it really is just helping. Uh, and honestly, it's helping by listening to what the barriers are. Um, in last time, we talked about being in a weird situation where you feel like um, your you know, superiors are not doing everything they can do to help based on the fact that, you know, you uh, have clinical, uh, a clinical assessment that's different. It's just different. Um, and they be feeling like even, like a little took in the back by what your supervisor or what uh, some administrator may say. And you know, I think the first thing to be clear of is ethically, it's your duty to kind of do the best you can uh, clinically uh, to make the best decisions and, and to challenge uh, things that aren't. But it, there's a way to do it on paper in, in terms of just clinically, you know, uh, just confronting. And then there's the reality of like the job. This is a job that you want to maintain and people do uh, take things into account in terms of how they're challenged. Um, and, you know, people do factor in those things for later, whether it could be in terms of disciplinary hearings, uh, it could be uh, whether, you know, they start to look at you more critically um, and so, you know, in the real world where people have, you know, egos and, 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 may, and may honestly feel some kind of setting, it's just different. Um, and so finding a way to sort of effectively challenge, um, I think is, is huge. Um, one thing, you know, to talk about in terms of that, uh, my experience, I have had pretty much every type of boss uh, or every type of administrator. I've had the administrator that feels like, you know, their word is just the word and that there should be no other way of thinking. I've had some that opens themselves to a challenge uh, consistently. Um, and you know, and do that. I have people that have been a little both, where they will open themselves up for challenge, um, but at the same time will, in the moment, will feel on some issues that their word is just the word, and that there's no other way other than 
the way to do it. Um, in terms of the things that I found that have worked uh, for me, um, it's been when I've had opportunity um, to actually hear people out. Because I think when you hear a decision and a decision um, made sort of, you know, in short order, you can start to feel um, like, okay, like where is this person going with this? And that honestly can lead you to have some pause um, in terms of what you feel about that person's decision and what you feel uh, their thinking is that um, because of the fact that maybe you just think like, you know, this decision is just not the right decision. Um, just not. And, and that can lead to uh, a difficult time for really understanding uh, everything because from your perspective, you just don't get it. And that's why um, listening is where you start with it. As, as much as, you know, people want to interact with it. And I think, you know, when I listen to people, you can kind of also see where the logic falls down um, when it comes to how certain people think. Um, you can see um, spaces to invite uh, sort of challenges. Um, and even in the situ two situations, um, it was gently putting it out there. Now, just because you gently put it out there doesn't mean it's not put out there. So in a situation where, you know, you had a patient that was just uh, a victim of uh, sexual assault, and the person was talking about them going to um, uh, IOP, um, and me thinking maybe that might not be the best treatment. You know, I gently put it out there. And they may acknowledge it. And I think it's upon us to continually sort of almost practice what we preach, right? We practice uh, uh, or we preach in our account sessions people to be assertive um, and people to think um, about the ramifications in terms of how an intervention may appropriately um, match um, a, the, the assessment of the problem at hand. And so in that situation, I gently just kept reminding it, which actually reminds me of, uh, and some people may respond well to it, and some people may not. Um, and even though, you know, yes, we, you know, we do have the balance of like trying to stay on administrators good side, once we do pick a side, I think it's really important that we stay there. Um, you know, and even if there's some challenge, um, we should uh, continue to persist in trying to uh, justify uh, why you know, we make that challenge in the first place. Um, you know, because I, I, it gives us a chance to explain our reasoning and it gives us a chance to maybe highlight something that they haven't thought about um, because their perspective is different. Um, you know, I, in another situation I had um, with a director of a completely different department, you know, his perspective was different. And it's ironic, I can kind of share his perspective because of, you know, me having similar interests, but at the same time, share perspective of being from completely different, a different department. department. 
um, once we do get um, that challenge in there and we do talk about the issue, I do think it's great to highlight it. So when we, you know, I talk to the administrator about this, I, I, I highlight the, the person, you know, a, um, a, a victim of intimate partner violence and been a victim of sexual assault. I highlight like the appropriate intervention and why is it appropriate. Um, and I put it there, but it is somewhat of a gentle challenge. Now, in terms to, now I, I can't overrule my administrator is a certain hierarchy in terms of how things are done. Um, but what you have in your ace hole is the client. And, and, and to be sure, like, and to be clear out, you're not, I'm not advocating for coaching, you know, your client. Um, but at the same time, you know, you want to make the client know two things. One, that this is their treatment. And I think when I kind of go, when I talk about, you know, um, the fact that there are some uh, supervisors or directors uh, that, are, that are more rigid and don't leave out of room, I think depending on uh, the situation, they may not even let the person know or they may not make it clear it's their treatment which is one of the huge things of ethics, right? Self-determination uh, and letting people know that this is their treatment. Nothing we do, we can do without their okay. You know, and that goes for pretty much everything. And when I say everything, I mean literally everything. And so, you know, that gives them the power that they can say no. So I've literally told my clients to say no because depending on how it's worded, you know, uh, they may feel like I literally have no option. Like I, I, I have no, none, zero option in terms of what to do and how to... Um, get out of the situation. I'm just sort of stuck. And, you know, and, and this is the only way I have care, uh, care. When, you know, they have a lot of ways of having care. They can just refuse to go along with intervention. Uh, they can ask for another provider. If it got to that space, they could uh, ask to uh, go to another clinic. They have options in terms of expressing their power as a client um, and making sure that the agency know it's their power. And, and the uh, joke I said to one client, I always say, like, you know, they can fire me, they can't fire you. Um, meaning, like, you know, they don't have the power to terminate. They may some may talk in that language, but be sure, like, you know, unless you're a mandated client, which some people are, uh, um, you have all the freedom to say no. Um, and you should use that freedom on a regular basis to say no, um, to let them know exactly the limit um, in terms of what intervention you want, what intervention you don't want. So to come back to it, you know, you fully explain intervention, which is also something, it's really the basics of, um, of ethics, you know, when it comes to that, like you can't have uh, informed consent, or you can't have self-determination without informed consent. You know, how can you say yes to something unless you know what it is? 
And so in this situation, I explained to my uh, client, uh, I was like, look, like, you just went through this, right? And, you know, you went through this thing with sexual assault, and that's really tough. Most times, you know, if I was to treat someone and I was sort of left to myself, my own power, I would do X, Y, Z. And they're telling you to do something different. Now, you have the power to say yes or say no, and I would lay out the pros and cons of what they're laying out, and I would let them decide. Now, some administrators might try to uh, influence their decision by sort of cutting service. Uh, the ethical nature of that is a little uh, different. Um, th this one situation, it was due to a suspicion of substance use, but the person didn't have any uh, consistent record of substance use. Um, and so it, that was not, uh, it was not there, it wasn't founded. Um, but, um, you know, those things sometimes can go unchecked pretty easy because of the fact that, you know, who is going to check that? Who, you know, especially when it's done from someone who's a high-ranking official. Like, you know, sometimes this isn't done by directors of programs or they will refuse sort of service um, because you're not compliant with um, their uh, suggestion, which, you know, to me, I, I've never been a fan of. I feel like, you know, maybe even if I think there's the one way to go about it, you know, like part of motivation change is having someone that's actually willing to do uh, that thing that you want them to do. Because even if they agree with it begrudgingly, if they're not motivated to do it, you're going to see substandard reports. You're going to see people not truly believing in things, and then maybe interventions aren't done as effectively as they can be, and then maybe there's regression. Hey, maybe there's even going to be some transparency upon your part because this guy is getting forced to it. And, and honestly, I... I in this situation, I went through it. And I, I saw the transparency. I saw the transparency when this person started to be like, oh, well, now I got to do this thing I don't want to do to keep my treatment. And, and the person honestly contemplated of doing that. So it's like, well, then what service are we, are we giving this person? Because instead of giving, you know, the right treatment, what we're doing is basically pushing someone out the door um, instead of coming up with an actual plan. And all these consequences, all these ramifications are things that you should go over gently with your administrator of saying like, well, hey, like this person has a lot of choice and this person can do a lot of things for themselves. Um, and we should be proud of that. We should embrace that. We should embrace our patient's power to decide for them. Um, and we should never try to make it seem as if they can't do anything for themselves. Um, especially, you know, because treatment isn't supposed to be forever. You know, I think some people get kind of caught up in thinking like they can just be a caretaker forever. They, at some point, they should be able to do things for themselves and make decisions for themselves. And sometimes, you know, some patients don't have support uh, systems or families, and honestly, in a weird way, their medical team becomes that first version of that. And it's a great place to teach boundaries both ways in terms of things that we accept and don't accept, but also to teach them how to make boundaries, um, you know, and teach them how to gain uh, independence. And that there's no other way, better way to do that than having them really think about what they like and having the ability to say no. No, I don't want to do this. 
Uh, you know, no, I don't want to be a part of it. Um, just no. And, and, and I feel like they will forever um, appreciate you when you say give them that power and, and feel the understanding. Because, you know, one thing we have to realize is that when it comes to care, like, it, people come in a very vulnerable uh, state. You know, they come sort of as things are falling apart. It's, it's hard sometimes to admit, like, hey, man, like, I, I need help. And the last thing someone that needs help wants is to feel like, um, you know, that they um, are just being lectured to and not being considered. Because then they're going to feel in this weird space where, like, yeah, they want the care, but they don't really want the care. When you get them to be on your side, when you get to build that rapport, they're, they're motivated and they're willing to try things and they're willing to sort of push themselves and build rapport. And from there, you can gain relationships to ask them to do certain things. Um, you know, so to me, that's how you challenge uh, administrators, that's how you uh, advocate and you get to get buy with your client. So you're advocating for their independence against anybody else. You know, you, you don't, you give gentle resistance, um, you empathize, you hear everyone out, um, and then when they're ready, they're ready. And until they're ready, they're not. Um, in the next part of this, I want to talk about literally making a safety plan because when it comes to uh, sexual assault and, and being a victim of intimate, intimate partner violence, it's trickier than you think because there's intimate partner violence when people live together. There's intimate partner violence when people are just hooking up and you may go to someone's place. Intimate partner violence if you're on the street and you just start to feel leery of someone. There's a plan that we can put in place. So on the third and final part of Samplecast episode two, we're going to talk about that plan. All right. See you on the other side of the break. So, you know, we covered basically being put in a unbelievable situation where you go to some uh, supervisor or somebody else to, to consult for knowledge um, when you're sort of faced with someone who has a hard situation. They're a victim of intimate partner violence. They've been sexually abused multiple times. Um, and as much as it's not the person's fault, and I think that's what led to me feeling sort of outraged and and in disbelief because of that senior official sort of made it seem as if like it's this patient's fault. You know, it's difficult to what to do, what to do to help this patient out, to make the patient feel safe, and how to address not only the the risk that's you know that's there um, for himself, but the risk that maybe he puts himself in because there is there is some truth to of, you know, putting yourself in toxic situations, as we'll sort of talk about um, later on. We've also talked about confronting senior officials, um, you know, because honestly, in terms of continuing uh, the hurt, um, it, it really can come from improper treatment. And even people with great intentions can end up being, end up, you know, uh, ruining any type of progress for people sort of trying to come back from this unfortunate um, 
yet still are way too common uh, trauma of, of, of intimate partner violence. Um, so now, I, for this last section, before we get out uh, of this episode of the sample cast, I want to talk about what's the solution. Because the solution is um, really uh, intricate and, and detailed, and I kind of teased it a little bit um, already. So the first thing is first, right? There, sometimes they are literally task forced, especially in this day and age where there's so much sensitivity to, uh, you know, uh, intimate partner violence and domestic disputes and, and people being victims of uh, sexual misconduct. There's a lot of resources out there. So please consult your state and local uh, um, authorities and government to see if there's an agency that doesn't already do that. And remember that automatically, uh, if this person's uh, under around eight, around eight, under 18 and under 65, you can check just to be sure exactly, um, exactly the age, because especially for the older folks, um, it could be that, that this would be a call to either DCF for the younger folks or for elder protective services um, for the older folks. So, but check for your state and see what rules apply to your state. I know where I'm at in Connecticut, um, intimate partner violence was actually rolled into um, DCF. And for each town, uh, they have a designated person uh, that is there to help assist people with resources um, and help to try to create any type of plan to recover from and reduce any instances of abuse. Now, in terms of the things that they will cover, you know, I, I can't tell too much on that, and maybe that's something I'll do in another episode. I'll probably can have one of those episodes on and talk about them. But I can, from what I've gathered on the website, and ironically, from what they recommend, I can actually talk at length about what the plan is for someone that um, is unfortunately a victim of intimate partner violence. Now, before I talk about a plan, let's talk about like the different types of plans. Because even though intimate partner violence, you know, is pretty straightforward in terms of um, them being a victim of either verbal or, or, um, or physical or sexual, uh, some places even financial, Exploitation is uh, considered a part of in the partner violence. Um, that it, it, it differs uh, in some factors. One, uh, uh, the, the two people, are they a couple? Um, any point in time in a consensual relationship? Do they live together? Are the children in the home? Um, is it just, is it the victim visiting the assailant's home? Uh, or, or the perpetrator's home, because all those factors will literally affect um, everything in terms of your planning. Now, there's some things that overlap, but honestly, as I read through it, there'll be some things um, that won't. And I think that's one uh, huge thing to kind of go through with it. Um, I do think in terms of risk assessment, so, you know, uh, whether it be for uh, suicide risk assessment or it can be uh, for um, any type of just subjective behavior, whether it be just uh, substance uh, intoxication um, or it could be um, some type of angry outburst where they them too, they themselves become like abusive toward others. You know, you should always do a risk assessment to check for that. Um, as well. So there's a lot of like foundational steps before you even get into treatment. And also to remember that, you know, this is traumatic and that part of trauma treatment is a balance between building strength and then gradually exposing people to parts of the trauma to reframe the trauma as a place of resilience that they can move on from 
to reduce the possibility of trauma ever happening again. And that is a delicate stance. So when you set these foundational steps and you have these plans in place, don't think it's just, you know, you're just going to push through it or blow through it. And sometimes us as um, mental health providers can just see that, and it's not written on the paper, but it's really there to try to um, be as a guide, not a dictate. Uh, and so therefore, um, you know, it's something uh, that you have to take time in. Um, and if you notice that your patient um, is responding um, badly, as you ask questions, as you still apply the interventions on the ground to respond to some of these reminders, just take a step back and just, and honestly, and reaffirm their own rights. One of the things we talked about in the, in the, in the, in the uh, middle section, when we talked about how to prevent, you know, miscare, um, is empowering the patient. Because unless the patient is mandated or, uh, and somehow like, uh, being treated against their will, like maybe they're uh, uh, in a prison population, if there's someone just going for voluntary treatment, um, they have a lot of power to push back against providers. Um, and, and that's something you want to continually empower and continually uh, push for as a, um, a, as a mental health provider. So if they say, hey, you know man, this is too much, and honestly, that's been a time where I've really gained the end and built some rapport. Where I, and it, it will sound weird, but I, you know, I, I'll be like straight, straight up with my, with my patients, like, yo, you're sick of talking about this, aren't you? Like, you know, cause you think about it, like they talk to us about, they talk to us about this. Then maybe if they have that intimate partner violence person, they talk to them about that. Then if they have a, they did a police investigation, they gotta, all those times, they have to re-remember the trauma and go through it. And every time, they're triggered. It comes right back. They relive it. And that's a horrible, horrible uh, experience. And so it's about that dance of giving them time to build strength and then pushing through um, that, that the strength is uh, communicated enough to actually visit the trauma without triggering that person and causing depressive episodes again. But as I said, we land the foundational pieces, we're pacing, we're taking our time with, our cl with the client or the patient. And one of the things we should do is think about uh, safety planning. Um, we talked about how there's different components of safety planning. So I'm just gonna jump all over the place. Uh, if you do your research in terms of stuff we talked about uh, and go into the internet, there's a lot of resources for that. Um, but there's, there is several things. So in terms of safety planning, one thing that sort of comes out of like risk assessment is who are their resources? Who are their support team? And constantly being, having them be in contact with them. And everyone has a social support team. Even if you don't have friends, you have a social support team. You know, because like, you can, your doctor could be a support team. You can say, hey, man, I'm going to keep up with my doctor, I'm going to keep up with my social worker, I'm going to keep up with my caseworker, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call them constantly. And all of them can be a part of your social support team. And what is that, and how does that factor into a safety plan? One thing that cuts across the board, and even in all the different situations, is that when you have um, someone who may go into a situation with someone that they're unsure about, and we'll talk about those skills later, um, that they should be in constant communication with their uh, source support team to provide support in case something goes wrong, to provide uh, out um, in case they need an excuse to leave. Um, part of having a support team is having someone that responds. Because when you're in that moment of being abused uh, or when you're in that moment of being victimized, you may not think about 
who to call, and you may not think about exactly where to go. But if you ha constantly have that communication with the team, especially when you're dealing with an uh, intimate partner that you have any, um, any type of uh, uh, concern about or if you've had stuff in the past or you've had concern um, in the past, um, that is vital um, in terms of that. And I, and I actually, I mentioned uh, something else I was, I'd go into, um, is two things. Is to really assess the risk level of the people that you're around uh, when you're intimate partner, as an intimate partner. And sometimes that's a lot easier said than done. You know, who, you know, wears on their face like, hey, I'm the one that's gonna, you know, abuse you. But there are some signs that may be concerning. Um, you know, it could be to the way they handle conflicts. It could be uh, for uh, lack of frustration tolerance. It could be a lack of respecting your boundaries. It could be uh, substance use, it, you know, intense substance use. In a way that's sort of reckless and, and concerning. It could be a lack of any adherence to social norms or rules or regulations where there's just lack of concern for following them. And you know, all those things come out of the MST um, modality, which ironically from my state's um, uh, intimate partner violence uh, webpage uh, in terms of how to deal with it is the modality. Like we sort of kind of briefly mention other modalities, but they really harp on MST which is a uh, modality that's usually meant for young, let's say somewhere between teens and young adults who deal with conduct disorder, that have uh, antisocial personality traits, who just don't care about the, the concern or well-being of others, have issues with laws, uh, just con other people, lie to people, um, and just don't have little remorse. Um, about what they do and how it affects people. There, you know, there's no second thought. And, um, and to like, kind of, you know, tackle, tiptoe around it, you think about it, like that's what a personality disorder on some level is. It's not having guilt. It's, you know, like in almost every other disorder, you have guilt. You, there's like a second thought. I mean, and it's not even like you, may feel it for a long time, but it's like a little bit of a, mm, maybe I went a little too far. With a person, there's no, there's, that doesn't exist. This is, I did it, and if you were in my shoes, you would do the same thing too. Um, and so, uh, in terms of actually um, uh, doing the, those are some things you'd look for. And if you see those things, you start to communicate to your social support team. And you don't have to tell them everything, but hey, you'd be like, hey, I'm seeing this guy, if you're a girl or, or whoever, like, you know, if you're in a same-sex relationship, I'm seeing this guy, I'm seeing this girl, I'm seeing whoever. I have a couple of concerns. You know, I, I think I want to give him a chance, but I have a couple of concerns. And those are things that help document some risk factors and help prepare you to uh, use um, anything you have to do that. One thing we talked about was giving yourself out. Um, when you talk to your support team, those will lead to sort of opportunities. Sometimes they're uh, legitimate. And honestly, this is, this is your safety. Sometimes you just gotta make some stuff up. And, and use your provider, use me. Say, I gotta see Omar, man. Like he, he needs to move his couch. Like, I don't know, he may call me at any time. Do, you know, use any type of excuse to give yourself out. So therefore, if you feel like you need to leave, you can leave. Tell your friends, tell your support team to call you, to text you, to interrupt um, the interaction between um, you and the possible perpetrator. Um, you know, continue just to have those different parts in your life. So therefore, the message is communicated 
first of all, it gives you out. But then the message indirectly in, in is communicated that, hey, I have a support team. I have people that care about me, and I have people that look after me. And I'm not vulnerable. I, I'm, I'm not. And I, and, I, and I can stand up for myself and do something for myself. Um, so we talked about having a support team. We talked about having an out. Um, unfortunately, you know, sometimes all 